Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 1st, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Swai Trenbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Guys, we made it to May. We did it. <laughs> It feels like every month, like feels like it's now five months of time. It's 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 crazy. Yeah, I'm starting to measure my weeks and how many editions of the quarantine stream column we have on the site. We're going to hit uh, 50 next week. Wow! 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 Crazy! It's crazy to think of. Okay, let's talk about what we've been doing this past week. I haven't really been doing anything, but. Uh, me and Ketra, we we run this YouTube channel called Ordinary Adventures. You've heard me talk about this on previous version, uh, pre- previous episodes of this podcast. Uh, we our channel hit a hundred thousand subscribers, and when that happens, YouTube sends out a silver play button, which is kind of this award that is you know silver and reflective, and you can hang on the wall, and it's. Uh, Sadly, something I, I, I really wanted since we st- started this, and we didn't think we were going to get at this uh, quickly. Um, so we, we got that and recorded a video about that this week. And that, that was, I guess, the big exciting thing this week. Uh, actually, also today is our five-year anniversary. So yay. Congratulations. Oh, yay. So we'll be spend- celebrating that in quarantine in some way. I'm not even sure how yet. <laughs> maybe we'll 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 go big and order you know cheesecake factory or something peter i was literally about to say order cheesecake factory yeah uh the 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 interesting thing with um back to the silver play button thing the interesting thing is youtube gives out these play button awards these milestone awards uh they're they only give out three of them so one's at a hundred thousand subscribers the next one's at one million and the diamond and that's gold and the diamond one after that is at 10 million so i don't think we're ever going to see a gold award because that requires us to 10 times this but uh 
don't know. I, I, I am really proud of what we accomplished. Uh, if you want to check out, we did a video kind of taking a look back at our first year on YouTube and revisit, revisiting all the adventures we took. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, that's, I guess, all that I have been doing this week. Jacob, what have you been doing? Uh, I had a very vivid dream. And I know dreams are boring and telling people your dreams is like the best way to put someone to sleep. But I had a dream so peculiar with such a peculiar concept that I figured I'd need to ask a question of the group. And that dream is, I had a dream I was playing a kart racing game, you know, like Mario Kart. Except that it was, a, it was Wes Anderson racing. And all the characters were Wes Anderson characters, but like driving little go-karts around in a racing video game. So my question for all of you is, which film director or film franchise would you want to play a, a kart racing game in? Because Wes Anderson is perfect, because all the characters are defined by their costumes. You take one look at them, oh, that guy must drive fast, that guy must have control. <laughs> Like that guy must have a funny quip to say when he makes it a tight turn and wins first place. So I need to know who, what other filmmakers are best fits for a metaphorical kart racing game. Huh. This is a question that I don't think I have like an immediate answer, Jacob. Uh, Tim Burton. That's another yes. one. Yes. Ooh, that'd be fun. Um, I'm just else? wondering which Bill Murray plays first. Oh, uh, Steve Zissou would be the. Um, Go like the default like Bill Murray character, uh, Gustav Graves from Grandpa's Hotel, Mark yeah. Tenenbaum. Those are all characters I feel like would be in the top row. You, have to, you eventually have to unlock the deeper cuts, but not that I know. want this. But you know, kids would would go crazy for a Minions kart racing game. They all look the same, <laughs> but the, they they all the, but they also have could have different vehicles. They have they have that purple Minion, and you can also have like Gru and the girls and. That that old professor uh, that has a, a cart or a scooter or something. I can get behind a Despicable Me franchise racing as long as yeah, it's, as yeah. Long as I, so I was picturing like all the characters are minions and that would just be like no no fun there. But yes, I can I, I can I can imagine all the gadgets you pick up to derail other cart races. See, okay, there I'm you go. Notes. Yeah, yeah. My first thought is uh, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, oh, that's a good one. Franchise one because then you could have the um, the uh, Pacific Rim robots uh, the. Jaegers and basically turning it into like a huge Transformers type of race. <laughs> See, I was thinking of like a, of a, a really gothic racing game where the races don't end and you're just stuck in this hellish landscape driving that the entire too. time. Oh, like different worlds. So you can play in the different worlds of the different Guillermo del Toro ones. And maybe you can mix things up, have the, the pale man show up in the shape of water for some reason. I don't know. That'd be fun. Oh. Idea, the idea of the ghost kid from Devil's Backbone racing against Hellboy. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could have, like, the Michael Bay Cinematic Universe racing game where it has Transformers against Nicolas Cage, against... Uh, <laughs> uh, the Bad you, Boys. Yeah, the Bad Boys. But they share one cart and they bicker constantly. <laughs> uh, I'll go with um the the Lars von Trier racing universe. We have like mel <laughs> melancholia and Antichrist and the house that Jack built. They're all racing each other. I would watch like that. There, there's a nymphomaniac car that's just composed of people that are engaged in intercourse. Yeah, exactly. And then at the end, <laughs> mel melancholia crashes into the track and kills everyone. And that's how the game ends. So that's the Mario Kart blue shell as you, you fling mel melancholia at oh, the a... planet at people. There's a really obvious answer to this. I'm surprised HT didn't mention it. What about Miyazaki? That seems oh. like Ooh. clear cut. Oh, the cat bus. And yeah, all, all that would be awesome. 
Yeah. No, no. That would be, I mean, I'm surprised they haven't thought of that already. I'm sure there probably is one already, and I, don't, I haven't played it yet. But um, yeah, that's, that, that's definitely one. You know what? I've actually heard something about Studio Ghibli because I know Mondo worked with them on like a show. Or was it Mondo? I think it was Mondo. It's one of the art galleries worked with Studio Ghibli on a show, and they have like really big restrictions in that Miyazaki doesn't want the characters to. They they have to exist in their own worlds and they don't collide in any way. So there was they were not able to make art prints that featured multiple characters in the same you know space. Mm. I'm not huh. sure why that, that is. Me. Ghibli has like very tight control over the merchandising for their characters, so that doesn't surprise me. I did, I had I hadn't heard of the uh, no mixing thing, but um, <laughs> that. That's yeah. That's uh. That doesn't surprise me too much. Yeah, they're oh. they're very tight about their stuff, almost like Nintendo is. Like, I, I, well, also, well, Nintendo has Super Smash Brothers, so I guess they're not that tight. But yeah. Well, thank you for indulging this question. I, I just, <laughs> I think it's because Grand Budapest Hotel is hitting Criterion this week, and my, my copy has arrived. And between that and playing a lot of Nintendo Switch, I just had this very vivid, stupid dream. So thank you very much for this. <laughs> okay. I don't know how we're going to follow that up. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? So uh, Xfinity uh, and their parent company, NBC Universal, recently made their streaming service Peacock available for uh, Xfinity X1 and Flex subscribers. So I went to check it out since the Peacock uh, subscription service is included in my cable subscription. I actually still subscribe to Xfinity because I like having a DVR and being able to watch things that might otherwise not immediately be available on streaming, uh, just so that I have them conveniently around. And sometimes it's just nice to have live TV to put on and not have to worry about picking something to watch since no streaming services have uh, instituted playlists yet. But I digress. Uh, So I tried Peacock out, and in its form on Xfinity through the cable box, um, it's a little bit clunky, which is kind of frustrating. It, It feels like you're working you know, uh, through, like, an, an old game system or something like that. It's, it's slow to, like, move around the menu, and it's not super intuitive. And uh, it has the annoying old Netflix feature where if you highlight, if you go to a show or a movie to see its details and add it to your watch list or something, it automatically starts playing a preview of that show or movie, and it's just loud and frustrating. And because the app is clunky, getting away from it, is a little bit slower than it should be, so it's just just a tad more frustrating in that way. Um, But one of the interesting things on it, which is also kind of weird, is they have this function that is almost like a half-ass way of having playlists for certain shows. They're in the form of, like, these channels where you can go uh, scroll to them, and they're basically playing uh, curated collections of clips from shows like... The Office and Kitchen Nightmares and Saturday Night Live and The Tonight Show. Uh, And so, like, when I went to go check it out for a half-hour block, one of the things that was playing on The Office channel was just a random selection of cold opens from The Office, not, like, entire episodes. Um, So that's kind of interesting if, like, you want, you know, or, or I guess want to consume certain shows that way and just kind of mindlessly have it on uh, instead of watching, you know, in the, the normal serial form. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to see what the Peacock app is like once it's available on, like, Apple TV uh, and other streaming devices. Because right now, through the the cable box, it's kind of uh, inconvenient and frustrating. 
Hmm. I'm curious about that whole playlist thing. So, so wait, you can't make your own playlist. Well, there would be no point of no. you making your own playlist. Or would there? No, be well, the, no, there would be that. That's actually what I want from a streaming service because I would like what I would like to do is essentially be able to create my own channel in a streaming service where I could have a, like a playlist that cycles through episodes of say The Office, Parks and Recreation, and Thirty Rock, and it just plays a random assortment of them as if they were being played in syndication on television. That way, I don't have to sit and choose and go back and forth between shows. I can just have a set list of shows that like it plays, you know, in a playlist. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. I never thought about that. I wonder if anybody's going to do that. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, HC, what have you been up to? I am no longer in New York. So I had the chance, uh, opportunity rather last week to go home to my parents house in Virginia and I basically got a ride down with uh, my sister, um, and we came down to my parents' house in Virginia and basically made the plan to quarantine in my parents' basement slash Air, uh, Airbnb, which they've been renting out for the past two years or so. And we're quarantining here for two weeks, and um, basically we're, we're have a, holding a very strict quarantine. Like, we haven't... Um, come in contact with my parents or my grandmother who lives with my parents for at all since we've arrived here and the basement has its own separate entrance in the back so uh, we can just like go out through like the backyard and everything and my my mom gives us uh our meals like on a tray uh <laughs> through, like through that she just leaves at the top step of the sort of basement door. So uh, that's how we've been receiving them. It's very strict. It's like I'm a prisoner in my pri- in my parents' basement right now. But it's a very nice prison. Um, and someone – I posted about this on Instagram, and someone um, replied that I was basically like in a bougie version of the basement from Parasite. And it is much nicer than the basement from Parasite. But, yes, I'm living that life right now where I'm getting my meals handed to me. Although I do have a little kitchenette and a little mini fridge, so I have like some – goods and uh bagels and other snacks and stuff but um and fruits so my mom has been scolding me to eat more fruit because i have not been doing that so i'm back home with my parents and like they're telling me what to eat now but it's it's not too bad like um actually my sister who i came down here with uh decided to that she didn't want to stay for the quarantine so she actually left to go back to stay with her friends so now it's just me by myself and i hadn't really talked to a person face to face in a while um, but I'm doing well, you know, I, I got my yoga mat down here and, um, I got my, a TV to myself and, uh, um, it's actually bigger than my New York apartment, I think. So it's, it's not too bad. Yeah. It looks pretty nice from your photos on Instagram. It looks like very minimal and very like, it looks spacious actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite, it's like my mom kind of designed it when we were we decided to renovate it to make it into an airbnb space and she decided to like make it very minimalist norwegian kind of looking or not norwegian like scandinavian looking and um i think they get a lot of compliments from the airbnb guests who come here of which none are coming because of the pandemic but um that's it's okay because i have the whole place to myself right now and it's actually yeah it's it's pretty good like um it's yeah it's just uh just hanging out here being a prisoner, I have another week while I'm in quarantine, and I can see a person. So um, <laughs> this is just how it is right now. And uh, I, yes, we are taking every precaution for people who are wondering like why I'm coming back and potentially endangering my parents, my grandmother. But um, that's just uh, 
people who follow me on Instagram, I'm sorry, but I won't be having any more cooking adventures because I will be getting homemade meals by my mom and I have no more reason to cook for myself. But maybe I'll give you guys some um, uh, peaks of the breads that my mom has been very consistently making. I got to ask you, like, is it any, I know you're like still in a confined space. You're not going out, hanging out with people, but like, is it any less stressful now that you're out of New York City? It's kind of the same. I mean, like it was raining for the past week, so I was kind of down because of that. But it's not it it is probably less stressful because there's just very few people in this neighborhood. Although when I arrived here, uh, a few neighbors were walking around without masks. So I think that they because there's just more space, people are less cautious about things. And as soon as they saw us coming out with our our luggage, they were like, are you the are you the one from Brooklyn? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) So um, but yeah, it's like it's quite spacious. I can, I can go into the backyard and like walk around if I want to, as long as I maintain like the six foot distance from my family. And there is a pool in the backyard too. So once it becomes warmer, I probably will be hanging out there for quite a bit. And I feel like it sounds like I'm bragging right now, but it is much, (laughs) a much better alternative than my rooftop apartment that I was uh, hanging out in my apartment. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Brad, what have you been reading this week? Uh, I got an advanced copy of a new book called Ghostbusters Art Book. Um, That is this big uh, collection of original art inspired by Ghostbusters. Um, It has uh, over 100 artists featured in it, um, over 200 pages of original artwork that, like, uh, none of it's been seen, you know, by Mondo or anything like that. It's all new stuff uh, that w- hasn't been released, and it's a pretty cool collection. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different interpretations, different artistic styles. Uh, there's even an illustration inside of it by McKenna Grace, who is the the young lead in the new Ghostbusters Afterlife movie. Um, and it's a pretty cool collection. Uh, I think that the only downside is that the book pretty much almost exclusively focuses on the original 1984 Ghostbusters. There are a few pieces that have some ghosts from the second movie, um, but otherwise it is pretty much all original stuff. And like, I would have liked to have seen a collection that has just an all-encompassing uh, collection of works for real Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Answer the Call, Ghostbusters 1 and 2, the comic books, and, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, as it stands, it's, it's still a pretty good... Uh, love letter to Ghostbusters. Inside of it, in addition to the art, it also has excerpts um, of the artists, some of them writing about like how they came to love Ghostbusters or the, uh, the creative process of how they created their different works. Um, and so there's a, there's a review with some uh, images from inside the book that you can find on SlashRealms.com. But uh, if you're a big Ghostbusters fan, it's a pretty cool coffee table book to have and just uh, flip through from time to time. Yeah, that's a shame that it doesn't encompass more. Although I do understand like if you were to try to get the rights for and to have like answer the call artwork in there that you would have to get like the likeness rights of all those actors and actresses, which might be hard. I don't know. That's that's true. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, Stephen King has a new book out. It's a book of uh, novellas called uh, If It Bleeds. Uh, it's got four stories in it, kind of like um, different seasons, which is like the, the big, the first time he tried something like this. Uh, and it's good. Um, there's only one story I really didn't like, which is like, it's actually like a direct sequel to The Outsider. And it's about 
uh, that Holly Gibney character investigating another entity. And I really just didn't like that at all, but all the other stories are good. So uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It was a quick read. I finished it in one day. So very good book, except for one story. Can you tease us with the best story that you read in the book? Uh, let's see. Um, <laughs> I really like them all. There's one story about this guy trying to write a novel and he goes to this secluded cabin during a storm and he gets uh, like the flu while he's there and he hallucinates that like a rat is talking to him. And I really like that just because of the. <laughs> just the way he describes like being secluded and, and working on your writing with like no one around, which is like, like my dream is like one day just to go to like a cabin in the woods by myself and write. And also maybe talk to a rat. You can throw that in there too. So uh, yeah, it's just a, uh, you know, it was a, it was a fun book. And some of the stories are the, the first story is like an old, timey it's like it sounds like something from the twilight zone but updated to modern times about um uh, this guy who dies and gets buried with his cell phone and uh someone is able to like text him from the grave which was it's like a it's like an old corny idea but he does like some really cool things with it so i i I liked it overall okay ht you said it was it's been raining and been dreary i'm sure you've been reading some stuff i have being stuck by myself, I have been reading a couple books. I have been reading Severance by Ling Ma um, for my virtual book club. You guys remember me talking about the book club that I joined a couple months ago, and we decided to keep meeting virtually through Zoom, essentially. And um, our next book that we picked is Severance, which is a book about a pandemic (laughs) told from the point of view from a um, young working professional uh, in Brooklyn. And it's such an interesting approach to the pandemic sort of genre because it tells, Ling Ma writes it from the point of view of the, like this um, young woman uh, who moves to New York and it feels very much like a millennial um, job focused sort of essay about life and her and the immigrant experience as well. But it takes, it has like sort of satirical tone to it because of that. Um, but there's sort of this looming specter of what the pandemic does because um, she actually has, is like one of the few survivors of this uh a virus that has wiped out most of humanity and turned them all into zombies, essentially. So it actually was surprised surprised me to learn. I was reading like 25 pages into the book that this is actually a zombie book, but it's told in such a tongue-in-cheek um, and funny way that you don't really recognize recognize it until later on. And it's such a it's a really funny and unusual um, approach to this genre, and it might be a little bit. Uh, close to home, I guess, in terms of just like how it describes how the world sort of falls apart in the face of the pandemic. But it's it's really funny and it's really um, just uh, satirical and uh, well written. So it's um, and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And uh, that's Severance by Ling Ma. So, so and, what you're saying is you're living in an apocalypse and you're reading a book about apocalypse that is funny that makes you. <laughs> I'm worried too much about the apocalypse that you live in. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> but um, another book that I've been reading is called The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. Uh, this is a book that I picked up, I think, at a used bookstore and was curious about. 
And um, I think it had won a couple of awards. Oh, it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So, yeah. Good book. It is very well written. Um, I've only gotten about, like, you know, 50 pages or so into it. But, oh, the writing is just so beautiful and compelling and elegant. And um, it tells the story of a uh, young young boy named Oscar Wow, who is uh, very much an outsider and a geek and um, which makes his life growing up in the U.S. in New Jersey very difficult because he comes from a Dominican Republic, Dominican Republic uh, community that all value, you know, very much to be much more gregarious than he is. And uh, it's um, it's it's really well written. I can't really say much more than that because I've only started reading it, but it's uh, wonderfully um uh, just a great experiential book. Uh, I'm really, I'm enjoying a lot. So that's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. So I guess I'll, I'll give you guys updates on how those books are going and whether Severance will lead me into, to spiral into more of a, a depression. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I recommend both of those books so far, Severance by Lingma and The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching Brad, what have you been watching this week? Uh, last night, I watched the Parks and Recreation special, uh, which was the first remotely produced TV series to directly address the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the the only show that has officially come back to air that has been off the air for several years. Um, they had all, all the original cast and some guest stars shoot stuff remotely from their houses and certain locations. Uh, practicing social distancing and it was honestly just wonderful like it was the perfect way to do this you know parks and recreation was always full of such optimism and joy uh, you know in the face of adversity and all these obstacles and you know during these you know what is frequently being referred to as these uncertain times this this show just really was able to address it with a lot of care and comedy and it was just the best way you could do something like this with coronavirus a lot of people have you know, been uh, complaining about not wanting to see any sort of programming tied to the coronavirus, but Parks and Recreation pulled it off, and it really was just a, a wonderful return for the series, albeit well, under upsetting circumstances. What was the conceit of how everybody was kind of phoning into this this special? So because Leslie is so actively involved in everybody's lives, she created a phone tree to check in on everybody during the pandemic. So she calls ron swanson and then ron has to call somebody else and so they're all keeping in contact with each other oh that's interesting and then that, that that was the first half and then the second half is her and ben who is now a congressman talking to the local pawnee shows um like joanne calamezzo's show and uh you, you heard with purd um about what they're doing to like help with the coronavirus social distancing and helping people and that kind of thing chris you also watch the special I did, and I feel like a curmudgeon because I did not love it. Um, I I love Parks and Recreation. It, it you know, it's it's a it's a feel good show, but I feel like I don't know, maybe just because I'm so depressed lately that it it I I never I kind of feel like I don't ever want to rewatch the show because it feels like something from a completely different era when like hope was a real thing and like it's a very hopeful upbeat show and it just doesn't it feels like 
hmm. it clashes with the world right now and at the world as it's been for the last few years. And, you know, while it was fun to see all those people again, it just, it, it felt really weird to just have them all like talking directly to the camera and not in the, in the same room. And they, they kept having things where characters who, should be in the same room together because like they're married or whatever. They get down and they like explain why they're not because they're obviously not. So they'll be like, Oh, I'm over here now. And it's, it just felt really <laughs> clumsy to me. And I will, you know, there were a few things that made me laugh, but overall it just, it, it didn't really work for me. And that's me. I, I, I seem to be in the minority because everyone else I saw on Twitter was like, this is exactly what we needed right now. And if it, you know, if it made you feel better, I'm, I'm very happy that it worked for you, but I, you know, my wife and I watched it and she enjoyed it too, but I just sat there sort of just like, Oh, this isn't for me. (laughs) I I do have one question here. Did they like set dress the backgrounds of these people's like zoom calls? Uh, It's not, it seems like for some of them that they did. Cause I know that Michael Scher talked about using uh, visual effects, the same people that did the good place to uh, create certain, elements for for the background but most of them they did from like whatever location they were in or a location that they were able to to get to to shoot for this ben you also watch this i did i feel like i fall somewhere between brad and chris i i certainly like chris like saw and noticed and was like subconsciously or consciously bothered by the seams of this thing like the you know the fact that people weren't in the same room and all of that stuff um it, you know it, it's just it's not quite the same as watching a quote unquote real episode of Parks and Rec but i also got a lot of joy out of it i i think you know, especially like just hearing that theme song again for the first time in what 5 years or something when the show since the show went off the air um and just like the very act of seeing these people who i spent so much time with and and love so much these characters and these actors um it it did bring me a lot of joy, even though I don't think every joke landed or and like obviously the the uh, reason for the whole thing was like a little uh, strange and unconventional. But um, I don't know. I, what did you think, HT? Oh, I really liked it. I fall on the side of Brad saying that this is a show. This is episode really just recaptured why I loved Parks and Rec. It felt like that there was no time that we left off between us last seeing the characters. And I felt like the writers really got to the groove of writing for these characters again. I did notice the seams, but it didn't bother me that much. I thought that it, that the way they worked around it was actually quite clever um, and more so than what SNL has been doing, for example. And um, I, I think the set dressing, like the props, whoever sent the props to all the people did a great job doing it because they did they did pretty well with like, you know, the pictures and everything. And um, I quite enjoyed to the cameos from, uh, especially from, from Megan Mullally, who uh, I thought that was a clever way of putting her into the show and like reintroducing like Tammy too, and kind of having that. So I don't know, I, I just really enjoyed it. I think it was more than just a piece of nostalgia to get us through these dark times. I think it was actually some good jokes and uh, good writing to keep, um, pretty solid episode of Parks and Rec. It's not like the best episode I've ever seen, but I think that they did well with format. And I think it just kind of recaptured why Parks and Rec is such a beloved show for me. Okay, moving on. A new show has hit Disney Plus. That's right. There's something new to watch on Disney Plus all of a sudden. (laughs) And that is Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. This is a behind the scenes look at the production of The Mandalorian. It's a six episode series. The first episode 
is 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 it coming out May fourth, Brad? I think it's May fourth, right? To celebrate. Yeah, May the, the first the first yeah the first episode comes out May fourth. Yeah, and this um, you know when when the Mandalorian was on and when uh, Brad and I were doing these like spoiler discussion podcasts, I, I kept on saying I can't wait until we get the behind the scenes like documentary about the making of this, especially with the whole uh, stagecraft technology, which like has these like virtual sets and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I was glad when they announced that they're doing the six part series. I will say that I'm after having seen two episodes, I've seen episode one and episode three. I was accidentally sent episode three, which I can't talk about, but uh, I will say that at first I was kind of disappointed that this wasn't a, "Quote unquote real behind the scenes documentary." Um, it, it it it's it does have footage from them shooting. You do get a glimpse at the behind the scenes, but I would say a significant part of it is the filmmakers or the cast uh, around a table having discussions and the intercutting footage of you know them filming the stuff. So while I was kind of disappointed that this wasn't a real behind the scenes documentary, I was kind of happy that we got this almost like party for five you know reboot with john favreau sitting at a table talking to you know other dinner creative five or oh Din- so, dinner sorry five. dinner for five <laughs> yeah why did it say party <laughs> for five show. yeah completely different show uh dinner for five was the show on what was it like ifc or yeah one of those networks it was just a great show and it, it really this is good because like in this first episode, which is about directing, which I, I guess we're not allowed to discuss details, but like a good, I want to say like a good one third of this episode is dedicated to Dave Filoni telling this hilarious story about getting hired by Lucasfilm and what the process was, which has nothing to do with the Mandalorian whatsoever. But it was just great to kind of hang out with these people and like learn the stories. You, Brad, you also saw two episodes. You saw episode one and two, right? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, like you said, we're not really allowed to talk about specifics because apparently certain details and like mentioning specific behind the scenes stuff are considered spoilers and plot, even though it's a documentary. But whatever. Um, yeah, this is it's a really cool series. It's uh, I was expecting something a little bit more akin to the uh, the documentaries that you find on the supplementary materials for the new trilogy uh, for the for Star Wars, but this, like you said, this has. A really um, healthy amount of just roundtable discussion between the the filmmakers who worked on the first season, uh, some seasoned Star Wars veterans from ILM and stuff, and just talking about Star Wars and working on the show and having these great anecdotes. And D- Dave Filoni is definitely a, an MVP of the fr- the first two episodes that I watched because he has such a wide breadth uh, of Star Wars knowledge and a passion for this and. On, there's sometimes where he's talking about stuff where he made me see certain elements of Star Wars in a new light, um, and you can even see the other like filmmakers in the roundtable discussion like very closely paying attention to him and kind of just like looking at him like oh man like this like it's it's really interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, it's it, it feels very reminiscent of Dinner for Five, which is a series that I uh, I loved. It was such a cool show because they just have these candid discussions and hearing these filmmaker filmmakers talk about the experience. Uh, intertwined with behind-the-scenes footage and cool new, uh, you know, displays of how, like, the technology was used on the show. We, we've talked about the stagecraft uh, known as the volume, and there's, you know, plenty of new shots of that kind of thing. And, yeah, it's it's just uh, it's a really cool show, and uh, I'm excited to see the rest of the episodes. 
And while we can't talk about specifics, I do want to say that there are some revelations made here of like things that was were originally supposed to happen it didn't happen and stuff like that i'm sure that'll make news stories in the weeks to come so like it's not just like you know fluff like usually i feel like around the release of a new movie or tv show you get like these featurettes that are kind of like just very self-congratulatory and very like on the surface but here you're actually getting some some very interesting information and details and i i can't wait to uh talk about some of those in the coming weeks but okay, uh, what else have I been watching? I haven't been watching much this week, to be honest with you. Or actually, I have been watching a lot, but it's been a lot of one thing. I've been watching. I discovered this YouTube channel called Iman and Beck, and this is a couple. They are a Canadian couple. They I wrote about this for the quarantine stream, which I'll link in the show notes. But they are a Canadian couple that basically decided to give up their normal life. They sold their house. And they converted a sprinter van into a tiny home and basically took off on the road to travel internationally. So they're traveling not only in the U.S., but they, you know, take the the, the van on trips like. Yeah, I guess across ferries and boats and stuff like that to other countries and islands. It's it's very interesting for a variety of reasons. I think it's interesting because I I own so many like things and the things I own kind of end up owning me. And it's interesting to see this couple that have kind of gone to the level of minimalism that I wish I could do, but I just can't that they like everything they own is in this like small van. It's I think it's like 60 square feet van and also seeing them design it and designing like, you know, what are we going to pack in here? Because they have, you know, a couch workspace that transforms into a bed. They have, you know, whole like little kitchen area. They have, uh, they didn't have a toilet for the first year or two that they were traveling, which is interesting. But they they eventually put a toilet in there. They uh, it, it it's just interesting how many things like I'm always interested in tiny homes and how like little things can kind of collapse into the walls and stuff like that. And they have like a solar panel on the ceiling of this van so that it powers everything inside it. So like when they're cooking and stuff, all that is like except for the gas is powered off of like. You know, just the sun, which is kind of crazy. So it, it's interesting because, you know, I know I've mentioned in the past on this podcast and on the site, I watch like uh, some other traveling shows like The Endless Adventure, which they, they also kind of gave up their <laughs> their house and stuff to travel on the road. But they kind of go Airbnb to Airbnb and kind of uh, find a frugal way to make it work. But the, the difference here with Iman and Beck is that they're kind of traveling with their little home which can be interesting uh, th- there's an episode where they actually parked it uh right outside of a beach and thieves broke into their van and stole the majority of their filming equipment and laptops and stuff so uh, it's just like crazy drama that can happen uh, at one point they they fostered a mexican puppy for a month while on their journey and it, it, there's i don't know there's a lot going on here i will say this i like some of the travel vloggers that I watch, like the endless adventure, I like watching along with Kitra because they eat all this interesting international food. And I like getting kind of to 
live vicariously with not only them going to all these crazy, interesting places around the world, but also them trying all these, you know, local delicacies and stuff. The one thing I didn't think I was going to like about Iman and Beck is they are vegan. And as a carnivore, I thought it was going to be kind of boring watching them eat all these like uh, vegan dishes and stuff like that. Um, but it, it's actually been quite interesting because Iman is a chef. He has a cookbook, which is available. Uh, it's a vegan cookbook. And uh, watching him cook meals that look incredible in like – you know, guys, I have like a kitchen that's huge, and this guy, these these two have a kitchen that is smaller than the closet that I am recording this podcast in, and they're able to create like the most like mouth watery looking foods. Like, I almost want to get this book and try out some of this vegan food because it, it looks so good. But uh, I, I guess what I, I've been, what I'm saying here is, I've been you know stuck inside like all of you, and I've been. You know, there's a lack of new movies and TV coming out. So I, I, I'm kind of living vicariously through these vloggers, like traveling before the time of the pandemic, uh, which is an, a nice way to kind of get out of your house, you know, without getting out of your house. So, um, so yeah, I've been watching a lot of that. And by a lot, I mean hours and hours and hours. Another thing I did give a chance to is I there's a Netflix show called Never Have I Ever. Have any of you guys watched this yet? Never have I ever? I haven't, but that's on my list because I've been hearing a lot of good things about it. Same. Yeah. Yeah. This is – um. so this is a kind of a sitcom. It's about the complicated life of a modern-day first-generation Indian-American teenage girl. It's inspired by Minnie Kaling's own childhood. Um, it has this voiceover that kind of reminds you of like the Goldbergs. It's like – but it's uh, John McEnroe doing the voiceover. I don't know. It's, it's kind of odd. I, I was very interested in this because, you know, I'm always interested in, in movies and TV shows about like coming of age stories, outsiders in high school. Like that that stuff really appeals to me. I mean, read into that. what you will. But um, and this, I think, is really, really good. I think I'm just not into like the sitcom format, but I do want to say and I watched two episodes of this. I, I think this is really like exceptional for what it is. And I think you guys like. HT, you would love this. Jacob, I think you would enjoy this. Like, it, this seems like like all the comedies that you guys talk about. Brad, Brad, you would enjoy. The, I don't know. It's just it, uh, check this out. Uh, never have I ever. I don't think I'm going to continue on with it, but I think uh, I think this is a real gem here. So, um, and I've also been still watching Westworld. The last two episodes have gotten kind of uh, weird. It's uh, interesting how the show is kind of turned into be very like it almost feels like a like a like a terminator tv series now it's become very different than what it was i'm very interested in the final episode and where it goes because i feel like that's gonna solidify my opinion on the season as a whole i kind of like the first half of it and the second half it's kind of made me question if i like it or not so it's really i think this final episode is gonna uh you know either nail it or put the you know it, it, it's either the, the interest i will say this the interesting thing about the show this season is they came off last season where it was so convoluted and so complicated and so many mysteries and it, like there were people online doing like timelines and even then 
you know, I know David Chen and Joanna Robinson, they do a Westworld podcast that I highly recommend it called Decoding Westworld. And even last season, they were kind of confused of what was going on half the time. It, it, it was kind of a, a big mess. And this season, it, it's a lot more simplified. Uh, I would even say to the degree that the last episode was explaining things that I thought that we didn't even need explaining. So I think they maybe went too far in the other direction. But um, I'm I'm interested to see where Westworld goes with the final episode. The, uh, but that is all that I've been watching this week. Uh, Brad, you mentioned uh, Mandalorian. What else have you been watching? Uh, I got around to finishing the third season of Big Mouth. I held off on watching it just because I wanted to spread it out. And then I just forgot and never went back to it. And I've had all the time in the world now. So I did that. Uh, and the show is still funny. Um, it's still so, so gross. And I just... I like growing up with these characters and having them get older and dealing with all the weirdness and uh, nastiness of puberty. And uh, the guest stars are, are great, and they, they did some um, fun tangents this season. They had a whole episode looking back at the ghost of Duke Ellington's <laughs> childhood um, and whatnot. And so it's just it's just a really fun show. And, uh, yeah, if, you're, if you haven't started watching Big Mouth yet, you, you should because it's uh, a lot of raunchy fun. And then... Uh, I t- in the background while I was working, I decided to put on Disney's first kid starring Sinbad. Um, it's the movie where he plays a Secret Service agent who is assigned to protect the president's son. And the president's son is uh, kind of a brat, but also just, just a misunderstood kid because he has to deal with being the president's son. And Sinbad teaches him how to fight back and stand up for himself and not be uh, awkward or a jerk. And <laughs> it's, it's such a, there's, there's such a weird darkness to this movie because there's a, uh, a secret service agent played by Timothy Bus Timothy Busfield, who he gets fired and he kind of loses it and he catfishes the first kid and tricks him into coming to uh, meet who he thinks is another fellow teenager at a mall and then he kidnaps him and tries to kill him. This is a Disney movie meant for families and it has a deranged secret service uh, agent trying to kill the president's son. And I just, I just miss the, the wild darkness of these, you know, nineties family comedies from Disney. They really don't make movies like this or blank check or anything like that anymore. And they're just fascinating and silly. And yeah, and honestly, it made me miss Sinbad a little bit. He's uh, between this and rewatching Coneheads recently. He was a fun guy in movies, and I, I, I wish he was still doing stuff like this. <laughs> uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Oh goodness, I watch a lot of things, so I'll try to move a little quickly. I rewatched Pet Cemetery, which is currently streaming on uh, Amazon and on Hulu. This is the new Pet Cemetery one from last year. I think this is a really exceptional movie. It's dark and grimy and mean and uh while also managing to be a pretty good time with the movies it's uh, it's harder edged horror than maybe like you know your mainstream stuff but not so unpleasant that you know it's you know impossible to watch so that's streaming on hulu right now uh definitely check out if you have it i rewatched once upon a time in hollywood uh quentin tarantino's most recent movie uh this movie gets better each time i watch it uh i think that it's just it is how much do you like spending time with these people in this world? And the answer for me is a lot. <laughs> so uh, that's 
if you've been looking forward to rewatching it, uh, is streaming on Stars right now. Uh, but some bad movies, or a bad movie. For some reason, we watched uh, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, a movie that nobody's thought about in years. It was a big attempt at, part of Jeremy Renner's big failed attempt to become an action star. It's him and Gemma Arterton as Hansel and Gretel, the uh, fairy tale characters who grew up becoming witch hunters. And I feel like there's a universe where this movie worked, where the tightrope is trying to walk, which is being a goofy comedy while also being a gory horror movie. I feel like somewhere someone else could have made this work. Like Sam Raimi could have made this work. Uh, but it's just, it, it's a failure on every level. It, it's a disaster. It looks terrible. Jeremy Renner is, <laughs> it's not that he's bad. It says that he, he's clearly not built to be a suddenly leading man. And the movie insists on shooting him like that, like taking off his shirt constantly and shooting him like he's a sex symbol. And sorry, Jeremy Renner, you're, you're a fine actor, but you're not <laughs> meant to be uh, shirtless, like lying around looking hot. No, you should be in a Boston bar being drunk and angry. That's what that's Jimmy Renner actor I want. Uh, I feel like somebody else at this table has at this digital table has an opinion on Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, and I want to hear it. I love Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. <laughs> Chris, no. <laughs> what? Look, it is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I love how stupid it is. I love the like the makeup effects to create like the witches because they all have like their own unique weird look i don't know it's a it is not a good movie but it's it's a movie i enjoy watching i'll put it that way that's fair that's fair jacob what possessed you to watch hansel and gretel witch hunters i just want to know i believe it popped up as like a rental option on amazon my wife insisted on it she insisted you watch hansel and gretel witch hunters and i don't know man i i just think of this i think of uh, the born legacy you know, all and how Jim Renner was not invited back for future Mission Impossibles. <laughs> and just this relic, this three-year period where, where everybody desperately tried to make Jamie Renner happen. And outside of him clinging to Hawkeye for dear life, Jamie Renner did not happen. And this movie is just a, the pinnacle of Jamie Renner not happening in any way whatsoever. I remember uh, seeing this movie in a private screening room months and months and months before it came out on the Paramount lot, and it was me and Steve from Collider, and it was just us in the screening room. And we saw this movie, and both of us, I think, it's safe to say, didn't love it. <laughs> and right after the screening, uh, the publicist brings in the filmmaker to talk to us. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> uh, Jacob, while you were talking, I was looking up Gemma Arterton's filmography because I feel like she's a little bit better than the, the choices that she's made. 100%. So I was just curious about what she had coming up and she is evidently going to be starring in a mini series version of black narcissus which is the movie that i talked about on last week's water cool i know oh, you're a big awesome. fan of that yes and alessandro nivola who is in uh the art of self-defense which is a movie that you love last year is going to be the main like oh, uh, the male lead in it as well and that's going to be on the incredible bbc at art of self-defense so that's, that's that's exciting news i've never heard of this project before so i just figured you might not have either and diana rigg is in it and jim oh, wow. broadbent is in it too why so. haven't we heard about this guy? i, this is great I have news. no idea but we got to keep our eye out for this we do hey, here's a fun random tangent real quick uh i did a set visit for runner runner that poker movie with ben affleck and justin oh, yeah. timberlake <laughs> that she is in uh it was in puerto rico wait and did, after the... did you sign an nda what or oh i thought you were gonna oh well cut off your story really quick brad i interviewed her on the set of prince of persia the sands of time 
in 2009 or 2008. And when I was interviewing all the casting, like when you interview casting crew on the set, you just interview them. But her personal publicist came up to us and made us sign this like end, like I don't know if it was an NDA. I forget what the agreement was. Basically, the agreement was that we couldn't use the interview anywhere other than our outlet and that we couldn't ask any personal questions whatsoever. It's the only I've been on many set visits and I've never been asked that of any actor ever before. So so we didn't have to do that because, uh, A, we didn't interview her. um, And B, no one cares about Runner Runner. (laughs) (laughs) um, but no, so I, I was on the set in Puerto Rico, and after the set visit was over, all the press who were um, on set were hanging out in the the hotel bar, and she actually came down and like just had drinks and hung out with everybody. Oh wow! And was just, was just chilling out. And at the, at the time, she was like, she, she was she would talk about things, and she'd be like, "Don't don't write anything about that." <laughs> and so like at this at the time, this was in 20, 2012. Apparently, around then, she was supposed to be. Uh, Recording like a, a remake of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that still hasn't come together, um, but she she was really fun, just just a really nice. <laughs> well, speaking of Gemma Arterton, I also saw her in The Girl with All the Gifts, which is currently streaming on Netflix. This was a uh, Fantastic Fest movie a few years ago that I didn't didn't see then. I finally saw now. It's also based on a novel. And if I had to pitch this in a nutshell, I would call it um, the Maze Runner uh, meets Twenty Eight Days Later. Uh, it's a British uh, horror movie. About uh, this is the first twenty minutes of the movie, so uh, hopefully this is not too much of a sport for people. About in the zombie apocalypse, uh, children who are infected with the zombie virus but, but aren't like actively essentially undead or whatever you want to call it, are being held in military research facility, being experimented on. Jim uh, Arterton is their teacher, like their classroom teacher, trying to you know figure out if they can be taught and what, what they can retain uh, as people who have the zombie virus. Uh, Glenn Close is a mad scientist in it. Patty Considine is a gruff soldier. Things go wrong. A road trip is involved. It's really violent. It's it's a I think the first half is better than the second half, but it's a really clever, refreshing take on the zombie movie, and everyone's really good at it. <clears throat> and the, the main uh, lead, a uh, young woman, is uh, bounces off really well at the cast, and it's really good use of Gemma Arterton. Really good use of her skills, more so than Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Uh, did anybody else manage to catch this? I feel like it, I feel like if this had been like a Lionsgate movie. You know, given a Hunger Games push, it could have been like a big hit, but it's, you know, it's a it's a smaller British film. So, did anybody else get a chance to see this? Goodness, no one else has seen the girl with all the gifts. Okay, I have. It's all right. It's no Hansel and Gretel witch hunters. <laughs> oh, Chris. Oh, we're gonna have a, we're gonna fight about this. Yeah, no, I, I I like you. Know, I like the first half more. I feel like the second half it kind of like fizzles out a little bit. Yeah, but you can at least agree that Glenn Close uh, is. Makes for a very terrific, like, military scientist with it, with that scarf and that haircut. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, also on Netflix, watch a few episodes of Haunted. This is a series. It's been on for two years. And essentially, people claiming to have true life ghost stories or living in haunted houses share those stories while extremely, extremely well done reenactments uh, play out as they tell their stories. And this series has my bullshit meter going off constantly to the point where either these people are all telling the truth and, oh my God, these are some crazy stories, whether whether you believe in ghosts or not, or it's all scripted and it's just like pretty good horror storytelling, or these people are all lying to the producers, indulging the producers, and producers are believing it and putting them on TV. One of those three scenarios, who knows? But 
I find Haunted to be extremely entertaining and a great way to cap off an evening of watching stuff. It's like watching a horror movie on a fast forward with somebody narrating it for you to fill in all the gaps. Uh, there's a lot of these, you know, paranormal reenactment shows out there. I think Haunted probably has the best production values. It's certainly the one that looks the most cinematic, but it's also the one that feels like if any of these are completely fake, like completely staged, completely written by the, by, by people and have actors instead of real people, then this is the one most likely to be to be that case. There's even one episode called The Slaughterhouse. They had to Google around and found that when it first aired or first arrived in the streaming, like people started like doing actual research to figure out if this happened, Netflix either uncovered one of the most horrifying cold cases in history, or it's all bullshit. And the producers insist it's real, but the authorities of the area where it happened claimed that they have no idea what's going on, so take from all that what you will. But still, I found Haunted to be incredibly entertaining. Uh, Chris, surely you have an opinion on Haunted. Uh, yeah, I did I did see this, and, I, and uh, yeah, I liked it too. I don't think I believed any of it, and like you... That you know, that episode, of the slaughterhouse. Like my wife and I, when we watched it, we were like, "How can any of this be true?" Because it just sounds too insane. But I, you know, it, it's if you're you're into like shows like this, if you're into like ghost shows, it's it's really well produced and uh, effective, even if you don't really believe anything anyone is saying. All right, uh, opposite side of the spectrum. I watched The Lion King of Disney Plus, uh, the original one from 1994, the one the animated one, the good one. Hey guys, I don't know if you know this, but The Lion King is pretty good. Just, just saying, it's a pretty good movie, right, guys? Yeah. All right. What, what if everyone was like, "No, that movie is trash." <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's it's fantastic. Lion King is so good. Uh, I know it, it's it's one of the cases where like streaming through Disney Plus, it's like, why would you even watch the remake out of like curiosity when when the original is just sitting there next to it? Anyway, it is still good, still great. The songs are so good. Uh, Moving on to more important news. Uh, Beyond Skyline. Before I start, who here has seen Beyond Skyline? Not streaming on Netflix. Hold well, on, that sounds familiar. Why? It, it was. It was the subject of a, like a huge lawsuit. Or wait, no, the, the original sequel, right? one. Yeah, the original Skyline was the uh, really low budget alien invasion movie that Sony sued the filmmakers over because filmmakers were also doing visual effects for Battle L.A. And it was a big, weird. A thing where Battle, Battle Los Angeles and Skyline, both those about aliens invading Los Angeles, came out the same summer and it ended up leading to a lawsuit. And uh, I think Battle Los Angeles is okay. I think first Skyline is one of the worst films I have ever seen. It's so shitty. It's so cheap and so poorly made. Beyond Skyline is a direct-to-video sequel, and it looks a lot better. It's a lot more entertaining, and it's somehow a better movie at every level. It's not. It's not a great movie. It's very much a glorified B movie, uh, but it looks like an actual movie. It looks like there's actual money you put in this thing and it stars frank grillo is a uh who, who I, I love frank grillo i love it looks like he's been in a thousand fights he's looks like he's lived a thousand lives he looks so tired I, I love him to death uh he is a disgruntled alcoholic la cop uh who picks up his son who's been picked up on an assault charge and aliens invade and suddenly they find themselves transported across the world via ufo and then frank grillo and his son need to team up with the guys from the raid equal uis <laughs> and a few others to fight the aliens in, in East Asia. And uh, it goes places. It is a crazy, nonsense movie. And I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying I was never once bored by Beyond Skyline. And even though it is a direct sequel to the first movie, and that it takes place at the same time and borrows some elements from it, it ultimately goes in very different directions. And I'll say this. this is I don't know if this is a compliment or a damnation. This is the only quote-unquote serious movie I've ever seen to end with a blooper reel. Like, big dramatic sci-fi ending, crash credits, 
blooper reel. Everybody like laughing on set. It's one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen. <laughs> um, and the bloopers are fun though because because like they clearly only had one alien costume because he re- repeatedly using it and and it's so strange to see like a movie at once be taken seriously have a blooper reel. But the bloopers are actually are genuinely entertaining and weird and feature Frank Grillo punching a guy in an alien suit a lot. It, I don't know. To, I don't know what to make of this movie, guys. Uh, it's beyond skyline. Uh, streaming on Netflix. You don't have to have seen the first one. It kind of fills you in on what you need to know, doing some very, very chaotic recaps in the middle of the movie. Uh, but if Frank Grillo with Equally Weiss fighting aliens sounds fun, then maybe this is for you. I certainly had some fun with it. Uh, all right. Speaking of films set in Southeast Asia, 0.0 megahertz. This is a South Korean horror film streaming on Shudder. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> it is... Uh, cabin in the woods haunted by ghosts teens go there bad time happens uh it's one of those and it gets the job done well enough it is uh not not a undersung south korean classic like i was hoping for but it is a pretty solid cabin in the woods ghost movie where everybody speaks south korean so there are far far better south korean genre movies to watch first in fact if you want a rural Possession Ghost movie from South Korea that's that's exceptional. The Wailing is out there and it's streaming on Amazon right now. And I kept thinking about how good The Wailing was while I was watching 0.0 megahertz. But this is totally fine. If you're on Shutter and want some foreign horror, it gets the job done. Uh, after that, I'll stream on Shutter. Uh, Absentia. This is the first film from Mike Flanagan, uh, who did Doctor Sleep and Hush and Haunting of Hill House. Like, genuinely fantastic modern horror director. And this is a film that was made for $70,000. It was partially crowdfunded. And it's incredibly low budget. It looks like an indie film. It looks like it was shot for $70,000. But uh, if you're interested at all in Mike Flanagan, his voice is so readily here, even though it's you know lower budget, even though he hasn't quite had full control of his craft yet. If you're at all if you're at all a fan of Gerald's Game or Oculus, any of his movies, uh, you can watch this and see, oh, from the start, his voice is so incredibly clear. The kind of filmmaker he's going to be, which is highly emotional horror, is already here. Uh, Chris, uh, would you recommend this to people who aren't Mike Flanagan fans? I feel like it's, it's hard to recommend to somebody who isn't invested in him already because it's so low budget. But I also feel like it's a very interesting debut. I, I think it's great. I mean, I actually, this was like my first introduction to Mike Flanagan. Like, I saw this first before he got bigger and yes it's very low budget and it, you know you can tell it looks cheap but there are legitimately creepy moments in this movie that proves you like you don't need a ton of money to make something legitimately creepy like you can if you know what you're doing you can you can pull it off for for next to no money and like the whole 90 percent of the movie is like in his, he shot it in his house it's like but you know it, it works i think yeah, I think so too. That's streaming on Shutter. Uh, all right, I'm going long. I'm sorry, guys. A trio of thirty for thirty documentaries on ESPN Plus. I wrote about this documentary series for my quarantine stream article this week, so I, w- I watched quite a few of them. Through them, I want to highlight uh, Rodman for better or worse. This is a feature-length look at the uh, life of Dennis Rodman. Fascinating. Like I didn't, I did not know how much, how little I knew about Dennis Rodman. This documentary is really artfully made, and really funny. It has reenactments and fantasy sequences to sort of spice things up in ways that really work and like complement the actual documentary talking heads and footage. And I never, well, it's one of those weird cases where like, I'm so used to Dennis Rodman being this joke these days. That's easy to forget what kind of player he was in the nineties. And even before that, the stuff about him in the eighties when he was a very young man is 
fascinating and heartbreaking and tragic. And if you if you're at all interested in basketball or like portraits of people's like crazy rises and even crazier falls, uh, Rodman for better or worse is very much worth watching. I also watched Forty Two to One, which is a documentary about the first boxer to defeat uh, to defeat Mike Tyson in the ring. And it's a it's far more standard uh, fare. It feels very much like an ESPN doc as opposed to Rodman, which is like feels very cinematic. But Forty Two to One is a documentary about Mike Tyson getting his ass kicked. And if you're like me, that's very satisfying to see because he's one of the greatest villains, my greatest, I mean, most despicable villains in sports history. So fuck that guy. And it's a good enough movie. Uh, finally, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. This is a uh, ESPN doc about uh, competitive eating, uh, focusing on Joey Chestnut, and who is the American champion. And oh my goodness, I'm blanking on his name, the Japanese world champion. Um, I want to say it's Kobayashi. Kobayashi, that... thank you. Yes, Kobayashi and, and Joey Chestnut had this rivalry for years as the two competitive, two top competitive eaters in the United States. And it's this is very gross. Like if you are grossed out by competitive eating, do not watch this. But it, the weird thing about this documentary is that it takes its, its subject matter seriously. Uh, Kobayashi is just, ends up being this really tragic, moving figure, even though he's most famous for being able to eat seventy hot dogs in twelve minutes. And his life story is genuinely fascinating and I ended up being really moved by what he went through and Joey Chestnut the American counterpart isn't as interesting but he's likable enough and the real revelation here is the head of Major League Eating the company that founds all these um and sets up all the eating competition in the United States is this is this like quietly monstrous guy uh he's a he's a con man and a huckster at first I really liked him I thought he was really funny as he goes on you realize oh my god he's like a straight villain he's like He's, he's like destroying people's lives in name of trying to create legitimate food eating food sporting leagues. Uh, so if you're at all interested in seeing about how competitive eating is dramatically interesting in the people who choose to make this their lives, I end up being far more invested than I thought it was. I thought it was gonna be like a, a laugh. I ended up being a really comp- compelling look at uh, some very sad people who are good at one thing and one thing only. That's eating a lot of food, damn it. So, <laughs> I, it sounds, sounds a lot like King of Kong. Yes, yeah, it's a good comparison, Brad. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, streaming on ESPN Plus. And finally, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine's uh, season ended, guys, with a uh, really, really strong season finale. With some major things happened, so I want to take a moment. Everybody else, I know a lot of people here watch Brooklyn Nine Nine. Did you guys like the finale? I liked it. Um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I do want to hear what uh, Chris has to say about it, though. No, I liked. I love the show. I, I have, I have no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I think, you know, it, it seems a little um, a little light to me. Like, I can't even... Re- I, I remember, you know, one of the big revelations you're talking about, Jacob, but I watched it, you know, this, whatever, last week, and many of the details have already left my head, but it's one of those shows that's so pleasant to watch in the moment. Even if I can't recall all, you know, every joke or every detail, it still makes me feel really good to watch it, and it's one of my favorite shows on TV, so... Um, it, it's like a little fluffy or, or fluffier than the things I normally watch, but uh, super, super enjoyable. And freaking Andre Brower is just like a national treasure. I know we've said that before, but every episode of the show, he makes me laugh out loud so many times. Yeah, and I bring this up because since the season's over, uh, that means that all seven seasons are currently streaming on Hulu. And we put the show really high in our best shows of the decade list. And I stand by it. Like, if you. If you still need to fill that Parks and Rec hole in your life, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is it's all there. And it's all just as good at this point. 
And that was the last thing that you saw this week because you saw like a lot of stuff. You watched a lot of that's things. It. I'm pretty sure that's it. Uh, it's a lot of things. I'm sorry I talked for so long. I'm, I'm, I'm the I'm the most boring person on this podcast. So I know everyone likes like, oh, Jacob's talking. Ugh. <laughs> No, he's talking. Yeah, that's what this podcast is for. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're hearing Jacob's self-esteem uh, phone into the podcast right now. Is what's going on? Oh, I have no self-esteem, Peter. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you've been watching a lot, Chris has only watched one thing this week. Chris, what have you watched? Uh, I finished Shit's Creek, and I I I can't sing the praises of this show enough. Everyone on this podcast, everyone listening, if you have not watch this show yet please watch it because it will make you feel better about everything and that means a lot to me because everything makes me feel awful and i feel awful all the time and i (laughs) i'm actually sad that we finished it because watching it was just a a real joy to me and uh this show you, you know like um, Parks and Recreation, like Brooklyn Nine Nine, like a lot of shows that uh, that eventually became like fantastic and and comfort food kind of shows. The first season is a little bumpy; like it doesn't quite know what it's doing yet. The first season is very funny, but it's not what it eventually becomes. By the second season, it turns into this very uh, emotional sort of thing where you're going to be like laughing and, and crying in equal measure. And the best part of the show is, is the characters you actually watch the characters like evolve and grow over, over the, the few seasons there were. And like the, you know, the characters, when you first meet them, they're kind of like terrible people. And by the end of the show, by the end of the series, you, you know, you love them and you don't want them to, to go. And it's really, just a, a, a fantastic show. Um, the first few, like all all the seasons except the last one, are on Netflix. Um, the the last season just finished airing, and you know my wife and I loved it so much, and I didn't want to wait for Netflix to air it that I actually just bought the final season just so we could watch it on because it's available to, for purchase on Amazon. So, uh, you know, if you've heard a lot of hype about the show because I did before we finally watched it, I I can testify that th- that hype is is more than warranted so go check it out if you haven't yet it'll it'll make your life slightly better okay ht what have you been watching i watched uh netflix's new teenage rom-com the half of it which i loved this is far and away the best of the t- of the netflix teen rom-coms though i hesitate even to call it a teen rom-com it's more of a really touching and and uh, and moving and profound coming of age story. Um, so it's directed and written by Alice Wu, and it's sort of a modern day riff on Cyrano de Bergerac, which is the sort of catfished classic catfishing story in which um, an ugly man believes himself too ugly to woo the woman that he loves, and so he. Uh, enlists a more handsome man to um, basically become his his um, his speaker, his his uh, representative, and like woo her through that person. And uh, this is a modern day LGBTQ twist on that, in that it follows a a bookish uh, Chinese American teenager in this uh, small Christian town in America um, who. Makes her mon- makes money by selling essays to her student- to her fellow classmates, and she is hired by a jock 
who um, asked her to write a love letter to the most popular girl in school. And as she starts writing love letters to this girl for him, she actually falls in love with the girl. But it actually is a really sweet and tender ode to platonic roommates, uh, not platonic roommates, platonic soulmates. Um, it is more about the sort of burgeoning sexuality as well as just like this coming of age of Ellie, the young Chinese-American teen, and her friendship with um, the jock, um, Paul Munsky. And it's a really, really sweet and refreshing depiction of soulmates and platonic soulmates and platonic friendships at that, that uh, is, uh, you don't really normally see in a lot of rom-coms, much less teenage rom-coms. Um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's it reminds me, it has a bit of darker edge to it than uh, most other Netflix uh, offerings. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Edge of Seventeen in its depiction of a multifaceted, sort of flawed female protagonist and the more working class sort of um, atmosphere and environment that she comes from. And uh, I, I highly recommend this. This is the half of it. Uh, Peter, I think you would actually really enjoy it, like what you're talking about before, about really enjoying coming-of-age stories. And um, I think that uh, I think most of you, everyone here on this podcast would actually uh, be pleasantly surprised by this movie. So uh, that's the half of it. I just um, published a review of uh, it on the site today. Uh, you can check that out, and, it's, and you can check it out uh, now on Netflix. So that's the half of it. Um, I also watched a new Hulu series, which is coming up. Uh, it's from the writer of The Favorite, Tony McNamara. It's called The Great. It stars Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt. Elle Fanning stars as the young Catherine the Great, the longest ru ruling um, ruler, uh, monarch of Russia. Uh, sorry, the longest ruling female monarch of Russia. And it's is sort of a tongue-in-cheek satirical uh, depiction of her rise from a naive outsider to uh, a very savvy politician. Um, and it kind of has the same farcical tone as The Favorite, but uh, it's a little long. It's about 10 episodes, and it really starts to lag in the middle half of the series um, so that it starts to lose some of that more tongue-in-cheek tone, too. It, it kind of becomes more of a straightforward uh, historical drama, which is fine, but at the same time, it kind of loses some of the energy and momentum that it has at the beginning of the series. Elle Fanning is great. Nicholas Holt is having a blast. He's just so... He's really nailed just um, the role of the, I don't know, erratic gadabout, like that kind of debaucherous um, character that he played in The Favorite and he kind of reprises almost in The Great. And he's really just like a blast to watch. And Elle Fanning is good too. I kind of am back and forth on whether she's a great actress. I think she's really good at playing sort of the, the um, stony ingenue, but she's good in here. And she actually has a good um, sense of good uh, sort of... A, ability for humor as well. She has some good comedy, comedic scenes that she pulls off really well. Um, but yeah, that's the great, uh, if you like that favorite, I recommend checking it out, but I will warn it is more of a kind of a straightforward historical drama, especially towards the middle, but it is, um, I feel like it takes some cues a little bit from Armando Iannucci, Iannucci in, turn, in terms of like anachronistic, um, very vulgar, uh, sort of comedy and political comedy. So, um, that's the great, and it's going to premiere on Hulu on May 15th. Um, I also published a review of that today on the website. 
Um, I also checked out Les Miserables from the 2019 version. Uh, this was the movie that uh, notoriously beat out Portrait of a Lady on Fire for the French nomination for Best International Feature at the Oscars. And I remember being quite outraged at that. And I know a lot of people were, but I had never seen it. So I didn't want to make too much of a judgment on it before I'd watched it. But um, Les Miserables is good. It's like it's not actually a modern day adaptation of the Victor Hugo novel. It takes place in Montfermeil, which is the um, setting or the setting of Les Mis and where um, Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis. And uh, it follows a anti-crime unit who are uh, kind of who patrol this a very impoverished neighborhood that mostly is uh, housed by immigrants and people of color. And there's a lot of racial tensions and tensions between the police and the and the impoverished people in the neighborhood who they often harass and abuse. And that ends up spiraling into um, this big crisis. And it's inspired by the director, actually I don't know how to say his name, Laj Lee. Laj Lee's um, personal um, experience that he 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 witnessed a police, uh, a case of police violence, and that inspired him to make Les Miserables. And um, it's it's good. It has a lot of ideas, and it kind of buckles under the weight of those ideas a little bit. But um, it does. It is quite powerful and um, ha- deals well with the issues of racial tensions and police brutality and tensions. Um, and it it does kind of feel like. The, that France nominated this because they they think it's it's it feels like very much like an important film, um, and uh, it it does kind of have that sort of energy going into it. But um, it's it's pretty good. It's uh, Les Miserables. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime, and um, I also watched Time to Hunt, which is a South Korean uh, crime thriller. That stars Parasite's Choi Woo-shik. He uh, played the son in Parasite. This is nowhere near as good as Parasite. Um, it's just basically a B crime thriller, um, especially the first half of the film, which uh, feels a little old-fashioned. It takes place in a dystopian world where crime has risen and um, things are generally very anarchic, but it doesn't really do much with the world building of this dystopian world. It, I think it mostly just kind of uses that premise to use sort of the gritty urban aesthetic as the backdrop of this story. Um, and it it works fine, but like I was a little disappointed by the lack of world building it in it. But the um, first half of the film basically t- follows this group of petty criminals who decide to pull off uh, one last heist so that they can use the money to escape to an island paradise. And Choi Wishik is one of the um, petty criminals in this. He's not actually the main character. He's one of the supporting characters. He's fine in it. Um, but the first half is just kind of, it's pretty like standard B uh, crime B crime movie. It kind of is a little, it's like one step removed from what you would see like Gerard Butler doing nowadays. But um, the second half is uh improves quite a bit it transforms almost into this um horror film a chase in which um the petty criminals had uh, accidentally stolen some in- vital information by the mob that runs the gambling den which they rob and they end up being chased by this ruthless killer that um 
uh, chases them throughout the country. And it's uh, the scenes with this killer um, played by Park Hae-soo are really intense and really gripping. And I was actually quite surprised by how much I enjoyed that last half of the film. First half really just kind of is a lot of setup. But um, I would recommend this if you are in the mood for a just like a good sort of B a crime movie that descends into a interesting psychological horror at the end. And um, that's Time to Hunt. It's streaming now on Netflix. Uh, and another film that I watched, I, this one I really, really liked, actually. It's called Invisible Life. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, it's directed by Kareem and Ainuz. And it fo- it's a Brazilian film that follows two sisters who are wildly different one who dreams of being a world famous pianist and another who dreams of boys and um in the 1950s they have very um set paths for them by their family but when the sister uh the younger sister runs away with a greek sailor and gets a stone by her family the pianist aspiring sister gets pressured into a marriage with her with a family friend and um when this other, the younger sister comes back. Uh, the father basically separates the two by telling each of them lies and making and convincing them that the other two are on the other side of the world. The other one is on the other side of the world, and they end up living in the same city, Rio, uh, for the rest of their lives, not knowing that the other sister, whom they dearly love, is living in the same city as them. It's a melodrama in the truest, most sweeping, rich, Douglas Serpian fashion. It's a really, really gorgeous, lush um, uh, movie that uh, I was, I found myself just really uh, connecting with, so much so that I started bawling at the end of the film. It is a story just about like these mixed misconnections and that yearning for someone who will, who you love and like, uh, and are allied with and connected with and yet not knowing just like that they're right next door. And it's really, really gorgeous. Um, I absolutely adored this movie. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's such a, it just delivers such an emotional wallop at the end. And it's such, and it's filmed in such this dreamy, rich um, way that it's just uh, completely captured me. Uh, I think, Ben, you would really enjoy this film. It's really, really gorgeous um, and quite emotional. And uh, I absolutely adore it. It's called Invisible Life. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. And um, that's all the new things I've been watching. I've just uh, also been re-watching a lot of Community, which recently hit Netflix. And um, it's been on Hulu for a while, but it recently just dropped on Netflix, which makes it a little easier to watch because you don't have the commercials uh, slash ads. So I've just been kind of re-watching it, and it's great. Just really sharp, just really fun comedy. I haven't seen it since... um, I, I watched it the first time in college, I think. And uh, I really, I still really enjoy it. I mean, there are still ups and downs, but the the humor and like the comedy has aged really well. And uh, it, except for some parts that actually, there are some parts that haven't aged well, but uh, other than that, it's just a really smart, uh, really conceptual comedy that I enjoy uh, returning to. And I actually end up getting distracted by when I'm, I put it on um, when I'm working sometimes. And I'm like, wait, this is actually quite interesting. And I need to stop it because it's just such a, a fun show to get um, sucked into. So, um, yeah, that's what I've been watching. Are you going to watch? Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just curious. Uh, why are you watching Hulu with commercials? Because I'm not going to pay 
for <laughs> this next tier. I'm, you know what? I, if I don't have to pay for it, then I'm not going to. And the ads aren't that bad. I may, maybe I get the same one over and over again, and maybe it slowly drives me insane. But it's okay. <laughs> what's the What's the price difference between the ad and the it's ad like a free? Dollar, but whatever. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I. I was gonna oh, say okay. I would I wouldn't hate commercials, but Hulu just like the repetitiveness of like showing me the same commercial over and over again. Like it's worth that dollar yeah. or whatever. Yeah, that's what drove me crazy. Is I I initially was like, no, I can deal with commercials if I'm putting something on just on in the background, and then it was just it just got to really got to me. I was like, nope, I'm I'm paying for this. <laughs> I'm cheap. <laughs> I was just gonna say, are you planning to rewatch the whole series, or do you like me stop at the gas leak season? <laughs> I'm wondering because I the first three seasons are so good, and I am wondering like how it will be just marathoning the entire thing because I've never marathoned it the entire way through before, and I wonder like if that drop in quality will be really apparent when you do watch it all the way through. It was for my wife and I when we did the the same thing recently, and we I think we tried like two episodes of season four, and we're just like, okay, we can't do this. Like, it's better just to have that memory of the first three seasons. But yeah, anyway, uh, Community is great, or the first half is anyway. Um, Peter, do you want me to talk about what yeah, I've been watching? Yeah, tell okay. us about what you're watching. Uh, so I watched The Lighthouse on the recommendation of everyone basically and uh i don't really have anything else to add other than it's very good and i liked it more than the witch which i don't know if that's a controversial opinion or not but um uh, it might be considering how much people on this podcast really really love the witch but uh i I greatly enjoyed the lighthouse it's a very weird movie um but i i think the performances are tremendous and especially willem dafoe man like the fact that he was not at the top of you know, every single awards conversation for acting for last year is uh, something of a travesty. So, um, yeah, uh, props to to Willem Dafoe, especially. But the, the Lighthouse is it's on Amazon Prime Video right now. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking that out. It might not be your thing because, again, it's a very weird movie, but it's definitely worth a watch. If for no other reason than just to keep track of what the hell Robert Eggers is doing. And I'm very curious to see what sort of bizarre, uh, you know, historical type of weird movies that he's going to keep making as uh, as the years go on. Uh, I also watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes for the first time. This is the 1953 movie that was directed by Howard Hawks. I had no idea that he directed this. Uh, I, I DVR'd this movie from... Um, uh, Turner Classic Movies, and I just like press play without reading really anything about it. I knew that Mar- Marilyn Monroe was in it, and that was about it. Um, but I, I had no idea this was directed by Howard Hawks. It's the same guy who directed The Big Sleep and To Have and Have Not, and uh, you know, uh, Bringing Up Baby, and uh, like tons of like really you know Rio Bravo, like classic classic movies. I had no idea that he was quite this um, varied in his filmography, but I guess like that's what people did back in the day. Those sort of directors for hire just jumped around from genre to genre like that. Uh, but this is like a big comedic musical. Um, Marilyn Monroe like sort of gets all the uh, all the attention and all the acclaim in this movie, but she's actually like the, uh, it's like a two-hander between her and Jane Russell. And Jane Russell, who I just watched recently in another movie that I talked about on uh, the 
water cooler called His Kind of Woman is very, very good in this movie also. I think she maybe sort of like unfairly gets pushed aside a little bit in the conversation surrounding this film. But um, it's basically about these two showgirls who travel to Paris and the antics that they get in along the way. Um, Marilyn Monroe's character is like obsessed with money to like a comical degree. And Jane Russell is like the... uh, sort of like the straight woman who who's like her best friend trying to keep keep her crazy uh you know friend who has dollar signs in her eyes um at you know in control at all times uh it's a lot of fun it's definitely worth checking out if you've never seen it and you probably know it if you know it at all from the diamonds are a girl's best friend number which is like the the big song and dance thing that marilyn monroe does uh, like two-thirds of the way through the movie um it's definitely it, it's easy to see why that's such an iconic thing because she is just like i mean obviously like a knockout but uh incredibly talented in in, in many different ways um but yeah i, I just want to make sure that jane russell gets the props that she deserves too because she's equally excellent in this movie i think uh, and then finally, I watched The Kid Who Could Be King, or Who Would Be King, excuse me. Um, this is a movie that came out in 2019. It's on HBO Go right now. And I skipped this movie because I I was very interested in this because it's directed by, uh, written and directed actually, by Joe Cornish, who wrote and directed Attack the Block, which is one of my favorite movies of the decade. And this is only the second movie that he's made. So I was curious about it, but the trailers looked so bad that I just couldn't get into it and I added it to a list and knew that I would check it out one day and this morning I was looking for something light and and not too uh, intense to watch so I decided to throw it on and I ended up really really liking this movie a lot it's a it's definitely a kids movie like like um, geared more toward kids than adults but this is the kind of movie that I absolutely would have gone crazy for if I was 12 and and saw this for the first time. So uh, if you and, and I mean, even now, as whatever, like a, in my mid 30s, I still really, really enjoyed it. So I think, um, you know, if you watch it through the through the right uh, prism, you know, knowing that it's it's mostly intended for kids and like some of the messaging is like pretty obvious uh but but it's like good messaging and it's good it's it's just a good movie i don't know if anybody else here saw this film but did anybody else see this the kid who would be king i saw it and uh, i completely agree with you it's really fun and it definitely is catered towards kids but it's def- it's that kind of movie that if i had seen it like I, like you said <laughs> i feel like the kids who see it now would would really cherish this movie and it will be upheld as like one of their favorite movies of, of their childhood. And it's just a really solid kids movie and um, really just delightful to watch. Yeah, yeah. And Rebecca Ferguson is in it too. She plays uh, Morgana, who's this evil, evil sorceress. Who's like the main villain of the movie. She's not in it for that much, which I, is one of my complaints about it. I wish we got more Rebecca Ferguson, but she's really, uh, you know, chewing up the scenery a little bit. And it reminded me um, of her work in Dr. Sleep, which is just sort of, that shit in a, in a different way but this seemed like a sort of a dry run for the rose the hat role that she would play in that movie but uh peter you saw this yeah i also saw this i think i reviewed it on a water cooler at one point and i think i said exactly what you said that like if i had seen this as a kid like this could have been my goonies if i had seen it as a kid i will say that like you two keep on saying it's it kind of caters towards kids no, this is a kids movie, <laughs> and I think that's the, that, that's the problem. I don't think we get a movie like this anymore. Usually, even kids movies are trying to also appeal to an adult demographic. You know, they're trying to do the Pixar thing where it's good for kids, but also it entertains the adults. And I feel like this movie does not care about the adults whatsoever. 
I think that's true. And I think that uh, the boldness in the fact that it doesn't really care about the adults is maybe what made me like it more. Yeah. So I, I think I think you're right about that. Yeah. Um, and it, it gets a little uh, like I'm surprised about some of the stuff that happens near the end. I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but like some of the creature designs and, and some of the um, the action and whatever is like a little intense for younger kids, like super young kids. But I think for a majority of kids out there, this would be uh, a lot of fun to watch and, and make a good impression on them and, and like the right impression that would last and be, you know, like a, a potential new favorite. So the kid who would be king is on HBO Go right now. I just think it's crazy that that's what he decided to follow up Attack the Block with. Like he had like such a huge following and like I feel like there was a lot of genre of people that were excited for what he was doing next and to, to make the bold choice that you're making a straight out like 80s kids movie <laughs> I don't yeah. know, it's just very bold <laughs> oh there's one more thing that i wanted to say um there's this moment where they talk about uh excalibur and uh you know the, the premise of the movie is that a modern day kid in london pulls a sword from the stone and, and becomes sort of like a modern day king arthur who has to unite these bullies and and his friends to uh fight this the sorceress who comes back to you know take over britain basically and there's this line late in the movie where um, Patrick Stewart, who plays an older version of Merlin, says the sword doesn't care who your parents are. It doesn't care. It doesn't choose by birth or blood, but by heart and mind. If your legends say different, then perhaps you must write them anew. And it made me think about Rise of Skywalker all over again. Uh, so <laughs> just wanted to mention that. Oh, boy. OK, uh, moving on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating? Just a few fun things. Um, so Wonder Woman 1984 isn't coming out until later this year now, but all the Wonder Woman cross promotions are still coming to stores. And so while, when I made a grocery run, uh, this week or actually a drugstore run to get some more, uh, medicine for my girlfriend, I, uh, found the, uh, new Wonder Woman 1984 inspired Sweet Tarts Golden Ropes. So you've had Sweet Tarts Ropes at movie theaters or wherever, uh, these are new, uh, a new flavor. That's a tropical flavor. Uh, it's like a, um, a a golden exterior with the sweet tarts filling. Um, I don't love sweet tarts ropes. My girlfriend usually gets them when we go to the movie theater. Um, a, they don't give you enough when you go to the movie theater. And B, I just don't like the regular flavor. But these are awesome because I love tropical, like fruit snack kind of. Uh, flavor and uh, that's what that's exactly what these are with the sweet tart filling so they're really good and you can find them in stores all over the place now uh, and then there's these new Hershey's cookie bites which uh, there's two different variations there's milk chocolate and there's cookies and cream one has just a milk chocolate covering with uh, like a white cookie center and then the other one is a white chocolate covered uh, chocolate cookie filling uh, and they're just little bite-sized uh, balls of chocolate and cookie, which are, you know, just, just standard good snack stuff. They actually would be really good for movie snacks. Um, I, I don't know if they'll be if they'll be selling them in movie theaters or if movie theaters will ever be open or if we're all going to die. But, uh, you know. And then there's uh, um, Laffy Taffy Jelly Beans I found when Easter Candy went on clearance. And those are really good. I like Laffy Taffy in general, and I wasn't sure how they would translate to jelly beans, but uh, they pretty much captured well the flavor of Laffy Taffy in jelly bean form. Um, and they're not as sticky as Laffy Taffy is, which is a bonus. 
Very cool. Okay, so nobody's been playing anything this week, so I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. That's a good hey. podcast, guys. I, I, Peter, that was a, I think people hey, are going to hey, enjoy Peter, that hey. one. Hey, Peter. Hey, Peter. Peter. Hey, hey Peter. Peter. <laughs> hey, wait, 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 wait. Ben. Peter. Ben. Peter. Yeah. Are, are you hearing, like, Jacob's Peter. voice in your head? <laughs> I am. I think we should just go ahead and let him go. Oh, Peter, I have some very important social business. <sighs> okay. I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and refunery, sharp retorts, repost, costly quips, implied put-downs by Louis A. Safian. I've opened up the page 278, the entertainers section, because we're all entertainers here. <clears throat> Brad, the curtain rose in his performance at 8.30. The audience rose at 8.40. Oh, sad. Wait, so is his performance 10 minutes long? I'm confused. They left. Curtain- the curtain they rose left. on his performance at 8.30. The audience <laughs> rose at 8.40. They left, Peter. They didn't like my show. You're, you're at least per- they stayed for 10 minutes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I That guess. was nice. I took a lot of time to write this show, though. Well, yeah. Peter. Yeah, Peter, we, we, we got to look on the positive. Like, we got to have the HT look on the positive view of all these jokes. What we got we well, to do. Last night's, last night's performance by Peter proved beyond the doubt that he's going to go far. The audience chased him five miles. Well, I guess the HT thing would be, uh, well, at least Peter got some exercise. I was about to say that. Yeah. There you go. HT, she's such a ham, she'd feel a home between two slices of bread. Oh, boy. Well, you know, bread is good. (laughs) Well, Ben, he's a singer who's destined to go far, and the sooner the better. I don't know if you can help me out there, HT. Um, traveling is nice. Yeah, there you go. And Chris, his act goes over like a pregnant woman doing a pole vault. Oh, my. Good Lord. <laughs> what an image. Okay. <laughs> You're all very talented. I love you. <laughs> <laughs>